Hello everyone and welcome to Making Remote Work. Today I'm welcoming Julien Clément, Assistant Professor at Stanford University. Julien, welcome to Making Remote Work. Hi everyone, thanks a lot for inviting me, I'm, I'm excited. Me too, especially that we are going to discuss about areas, you are studying areas that are near remote work that are very interesting and I think your findings and your research will be extremely nice to discuss in this context. I hope so. I think mo like most of my work doesn't tackle directly remote work, but I think you know most of my research is on organization design in general. And, uh, and yeah, I hope I hope the conclusions that I'm reaching can at least be be a, a little bit helpful uh, in thinking about remote work and and how to design organizations in that environment uh, in general. To start with, would you be okay to introduce yourself and your research? Of course. Uh, so I'm an assistant professor at Stanford. I've been at Stanford for two years now. Uh, I'm French, you can probably hear that. Uh, and I do research on organization design. So most of my work is about issues of coordination inside organizations. Uh, I'm trying to understand a bit better how organizations can help their members work better together, uh, how to find the right people to work with inside organizations, and how to adapt all of that uh, as the work environment changes uh, in general. Any particular reason why you started studying this? Um, I think at the beginning, so I mean, if you, you know, one, one idea that comes back, I think in a lot of my research is the idea that there's a formal and an informal structure, right? So as a manager, uh, there's a lot of things you can set formally, like, you know, incentives, workflows, who sits with whom, a lot of different decisions that you can make. But if you look at an organization, there's always going to be a lot of deviation from that. Right? People find their own solutions to problems. Uh, they, you know, they, they find, people to work with when they when they have a problem. And so so things can look a lot quite different basically from what you would assume just looking at the organizational chart. And sometimes that can be a bit frustrating as a manager, right? It doesn't mean that it that it doesn't work though, right? Like I think that's, that's organizations have a, have an interesting way like that of working in a way that looks very different from the formal structure, but often still working relatively well. And of course, my job is to think of how they can work even, even, even better. And I think the reason I found that interesting, and first because I think it's important and I think managers should, should think about that, I think they do a lot. Um, but also, I think before my PhD program, I had a, a background that was a bit different from many of the people who went into a PhD. Many of my peers had, uh, had studied in economics, psychology, sociology, even physics for some, for some of them. Uh, and I just did studies in business, which happens to be a pretty, pretty stupid idea, actually, if you want to do a PhD in business, because you don't learn a lot of those uh, technical skills, these methods that you end up using in the PhD program. But it does teach you a lot of you know, frameworks, of structured ways of thinking about organizations. And, and I remember when I, when, I, you know, when I had a short period of time working in a company before the PhD program, I was kind of shocked by how different things looked from what I had, what I had learned. Right? So you learn all these beautiful frameworks, these, these beautiful structures, and you get inside an organization and nothing looks like it. It kind of like looks all chaotic and, and it still has a way of working, right? But, but, but it's quite different from what you've learned. I think that kind of stayed with me in trying to understand this interaction between all the stuff that's said formally and what actually happens on the ground and how, it, you know, basically how we can make it work better, how we can make sure that everything adapts when the world changes. I think that's basically something that stayed with me and that, that I'm interested in. And that's, that's what uh, drew me to your research as well. And uh, there are two areas uh, also that you research that are very, very interesting. You study esports and you study agile organizations in, in particular. Uh, so that, that's right. I mean, I, I study esports uh, quite a bit. That's, that's what I've spent most of my time on uh, these days. I think that it's a very interesting 
laboratory to think about organizations. I, I'd be happy to, to talk more about that. Uh, Agile isn't something that, that I exactly do research on directly. I haven't collected data on that, uh, but, but, I, but I have done quite a bit of thinking on that. I think we have, we have a piece together with Spanish Pranam, who I think you, you interviewed some, some time ago, uh, where we think about Agile. That's something that I teach to my, to my students as well at Stanford. So, so that's something where I've done quite a bit of thinking, especially thinking about uh, when Agile can work for you and, and, and basically what are the conditions uh, under which it can bring, can bring value for you. So definitely something that I'm interested in, yeah. Are you okay if we start with uh, eSports a bit? Definitely. And um, I, I have a very good friend who actually works in eSports uh, as a journalist. And when we went remote, I uh, immediately called her and I said, wow, we can learn so much uh, from, uh, from uh, eSports. And uh, how are they doing? How are you doing? How are you working remotely? And then she goes, I don't think this is a good, uh, I, I'm a good guinea pig for you because we are not working remotely. Uh, these guys have, have competitions and the internet doesn't have the right speed, so nothing is happening. Where does your research uh, lead you, especially with esports? Because some of them do work remotely, they do work distributed, uh, they do have competitions with each other, uh, 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 continent to continent. So tell me a bit about your research on, on esports. Uh, so, you know, back to what you, what you were saying about these connectivity issues, it, it is, right? But it's kind of an, of, of an interesting case because you would think that if there's one industry that's going to adapt fine to being remote, it's online gaming. Uh, but it turns out that it wasn't that easy, right? So, so it's, um, uh, it's because of a problem that they call latency. So the latency is just the amount of time it takes from when you make a click on your computer for it to go to a server. And that, that takes more time basically if the server is 5,000 miles from you than if it's just right next to you. And a lot of the tournaments that there are in esports are these global big tournaments that are actually very, very fun to watch because you have teams from all over the world, typically people coming in stadiums all together, uh, which isn't possible either right now. But the main issue was this, uh, this, this, this fact that since these are really fast-paced games, uh, if you have even just 200 milliseconds between the time you make the click and the time it gets, re gets registered, you can't, you can't do that anymore. And I think the, the answer from that industry has been quite interesting, uh, which is that now it's going for a local remote model. So you have a lot of tournaments, there's actually more tournaments now uh, than there used to be before the pandemic. Um, but these are all tournaments that are that that happen within regions. So these are happen happening within America, within Europe, within China. You don't have these international tournaments anymore. And I think it's an interesting, uh, interest, interesting case of, in a way, kind of accepting what can't be done anymore <laughs> with remote, right? So like, so these these tournaments just can't can't happen anymore. But also thinking about what you can do in that setup that in a way you couldn't do before, right? So having more content, as I was, as I was saying, uh, and also having different types of content. The other day I was watching a tournament which I thought was very interesting because you had a huge amount of different commentators. Every game was being commentated by, by, a, by, a, by a different pair of commentators, which typically you can do because, again, you have to fly in the team of commentators. Now people are casting from their bedroom, right? So you can have as many, uh, as many commentators as, as you'd like. Um, so I think it's been, it's been interesting in terms of thinking, you know, like the lessons from that would be, I guess, both not dwelling on nostalgia too much, uh, and being crafty, but being innovative, being kind of broad in how you think of the area of possibilities of what you can do. And sometimes even thinking about things that you couldn't do before, uh, there was this new setup. And it's actually kind of interesting because I think it's, you know, back to your question about my research on esports. 
I think it mirrors a little bit the, the research that I'm doing, actually looking at these teams and how they adapt over time. Right? So, so like the, the research that I do is literally looking at how these teams play the game. So I, I have data in the five last years. I can tell you every mouse click that was made by, any, by anybody in, the, in, in, in one specific game uh, in, in esports, uh, which, which allows me to tell you Every basically every choice that teams make, right? Like, uh, these teams have different heroes that they play, for instance. They have different strategies that they can put together. And so over time, I can tell you whether they change the types of tools that they use. For instance, like, do they use different heroes and all that? And the different strategies that they use as well. And what's, what's been interesting to see is that every once in a while, the game's going to change, right? You know, like the, the game manufacturers, the developers want to keep interest in the game. So they're going to change the rules of the game. They're going to change uh, what different heroes can do, what different heroes you can play. And actually, one thing that I, one, te one tendency that I've observed in that in that industry is that teams are going to change the tools they use, right? they'll change the heroes that they use, but they'll use them to basically relearn the same strategies they had before. So, like very often, they'll they'll find new ways of doing exactly what they were doing before with their new work environment, but they don't, they don't do this additional step of thinking, well, now we figured it out with these new tools. Can we have new strategies that we can put together to actually perform better? And if, and, if, and if we think about remote work, I think that's a situation that we can think uh, through, that, through that lens um, as well, basically not just thinking about, okay, how do we reproduce our, you know, our activity in that new working environment now that we can't be all together in the same room, but also thinking about, well, are there actually something at least that we can do now that actually weren't that possible without, uh, without remote work? I think it's, it's, it's actually a, a nice, it's a it's a good reflection uh, to actually have because you 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 are using all these different tools and are sitting in different places. So so new lateral thinking might might help. For those who are not used to um, esports, can you maybe do a bit of a definition so they so we understand that this is not just playing on the computer when you have uh, spare time and this is actually an industry that's growing and we can we can learn quite a lot from them. That's right. So esports is kind of funny, yeah, because it's it's actually a pretty huge industry. There's there's millions of people, millions of viewers, who really watch every tournament, pretty much. But people who are outside of that world very often don't even know that it exists. Right. So I, I know that before I started working on it, I, I really had no idea of the the extent of it. Um, so esports is basically people playing video games for a living. Um, and it's actually a pretty pretty huge industry. I I, I think I saw some statistics from last year saying that there were about, uh, I think slightly less than a billion viewers um, you know, on, on eSports in general. Uh, and, and the amount of money that's at stake is actually pretty huge, right? So, so uh, like the biggest tournament of the year last year, I think had $30 million of prize pool, um, you know, which is interesting as a phenomenon in itself. And for me as a researcher is interesting because I can make a pretty safe assumption that if you're playing for $30 million, you're actually trying to win the game. Like, so I can I can I can study these teams and, and basically see how they adapt their, their activity over time, how they adapt the way they play the game, uh, and and you know, make a reasonable assumption that none of what I've what I'm observing is just because they're having fun in the game. This is actually this is actually a job for them. Definitely. And at some point I don't even think they're having so much fun. They they actually have responsibilities and tasks. They they train every single day. It's a, it's a hard job for People who are very young, some of them, depending on the game, are, are literally under 18. I mean, you can play Dota, for example, for yeah, from when you are 13 or 14, and they, they train on it every day. And uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a job. 
what are you studying exactly in esports? Esports. So, um, as I was saying, most of what I'm studying is around organizational adaptation. So, trying to understand when your work environment changes, how do you react to that as an organization, as a as a team in this in in, in this context? Uh, so, do you change the the type of strategy that you that you had? Do you find new work processes uh, as a way of, of of adapting to that? And are there different kind of um, team dynamic that can help you do that? So, for instance. Uh, one thing that I see in those teams is, is whether they organize in a relatively flat way where basically everybody seems to have a say during the, the game, or is there a clear leader who's basically calling the shots um, and, uh, and telling everybody what to, what to do. Uh, and what, what I find in that context, which I find pretty interesting, is that when you have these changes to the game that are kind of difficult to think about and then, you know, where it's difficult to understand what should be done, teams that have more of this kind of flat, um, you know, structure with, with a lot of information being shared by everybody, they seem to actually do better. They actually seem to do better at, at, at adapting not just the tools that they use in the game, but really the way they play the game uh, in general, which I, think, which I think makes sense because if you think about adapting to a completely new working environment, um, at least an environment where there's a lot of ambiguity, uh, nobody has seen that environment before, right? So there's, there's no clear it's not you know it's not it's not completely clear that one person would have a much better understanding of what's going to happen than the other so having this kind of a like collective uh, you know team-wide process of trying to make sense of things uh, seem like it helps a lot for instance that's one thing that's one project that I have uh, in that context I have some other projects that are interesting around trying to understand how people allocate tasks with each other so like when, when you have a team that's new where nobody uh, has been working in that team before uh, how you know how do people make decisions about who's going to do what, who's going to work with whom? Uh, so I do a lot of things with both organization design and trying to understand how organizations adapt to a new work environment based on that, based on that design, based on those those decisions made uh, beforehand. I think esports is a really nice laboratory to to look at that, just because we observe so much, right? Like we can observe literally every mouse click that's been that's that's been done. We can observe some communication patterns between people. Uh, if we were to, to try and do that, uh, not just in one quote-unquote traditional organization, but in many different ones because we want to understand how differences between organizations affect how they, how they behave, it'd be incredibly difficult to get this kind of granularity. So I think this context is just great for us to see things we haven't seen before and then basically wrap our head around uh, mechanisms that we haven't thought before and, and trying to think about how they might apply to, to other organizations out there. Basically. How can they apply to remote work? I know you've done some thinking on this. So how can we apply what you've learned in esports, the way the teams work, the way they are set up, their responsibilities, the way they collaborate and communicate? What could we apply to, to remote? Um, so I think a lot of, of, at least the way I think about, um, about Remote work in that setting is just through the lens of you know, how you adapt to new work environments uh, in general, right? So, so, and I think really, uh, I think I've, I've already mentioned some some of that. Really, having this this kind of not just basically first and second order adaptation, right? Like the first trying to figure things out, uh, trying to reproduce the way we were working before as best we can, but just not stopping there. I think you know, like the kind of going further, perhaps like once we figured out the basics, trying to, to trying to think a bit more broadly. Uh, and thinking about basically, you know, perhaps like new activities, new ways of doing our activities, 
that's that we could implement to uh, to actually create more value. I think that's that's really probably the biggest lesson that I see from what I've seen in there that I think really um, really directly translates uh, to to remote teams because I think when we have to adapt to, to something, especially when it's something that wasn't planned, but it kind of like falls upon us like that, it's a very natural reaction to think, okay, wow, it's, it's already difficult enough to kind of figure out what we were doing before. Uh, so it's kind of natural to stop there. But I think there's a lot of value in at least thinking about other things that we could do uh, in that new setting. And it's possible that the answer to that question is, well, you know, there not much new that we that we can do, but there's gotta be you know there's so many different organizations in different settings out there that, that, that I would be very surprised if there weren't at least you know, a, at least a small set of organization. And my intuition is that it's not that small uh, where you can create value in a new way uh, in that setting. Um, another thing that I that I that doesn't quite come directly from my research, but that I, that I think applies pretty well there is just the amount of planning that I see in these teams. So it's, you know, it's just my observation, just hanging out with these teams, seeing them when they, when they work. One thing that's really striking is the amount of planning that goes on before the game. Uh, and I think that's, that's something that's relatively true of sports in general, but I think it's even more true uh, in, in esports. And it makes a lot of sense simply because when you're in the game, when you have all these split-second decisions to make, it's very difficult to kind of take a step back and say, okay, what are, you know, what are we gonna, gonna plan again now during the game? So everything, we really have to come, come uh, to the game with a plan. Um, and in a way, if we think about what remote work, work does to us, it's kind of a similar dynamic, actually. It's basically reducing the bandwidth that we have in communicating with each other. We can still communicate, but clearly the kind of, you know, relationship we have, the kind of information we can share isn't quite as much as if, you know, uh, you and I were sitting at the same table and could observe what we're, what we're doing, right? And so actually something that I've even experienced when I was teaching is that I think in the remote setting, it seems to me that planning ahead and being very explicit about what our plan is, what needs to be done, seems to be more important. Uh, it, it seems important to, to make it very clear what the rules are, how things have, have to be done, not just because it's harder for people to just you know, go and ask for advice, right? Because you're not meeting people in the corridor anymore. It's also harder as a manager to really see what they're doing because people are working from their bedroom the whole day. Right? So, so thinking about that, I think is is, is quite important. You did some studies on uh, routines and how teams get together and form these routines so they can be more productive. What can we learn from your research on on this and apply to remote, um, especially for new teams? So that's a good question. I think one, so one thing that I find in, uh, in that setting, one thing that's pretty cool about esports and especially the, the, the game that I'm following is that um, there is one setting where you see teams being formed random. So the, there's an algorithm in the game. You know, as a player, uh, whether you're, you're good or bad, you're just, gonna, you're just going to click on, I want to play a game. And the algorithm is going to match you with people of similar levels and just out of random chance, you might be you, know, you might be matched with people who you've never seen before. Maybe people who you were you know in a professional team before in the past. And so, for me as a researcher, it's wonderful because just randomly I can I can see this variation and I can, and I can start asking myself, well, what happens when, when when I see a team where nobody knows each other? What happens when there are people who actually have worked together before? Um, what do we see there? I think one thing that's that's kind of interesting uh, there again because. I think it is a setting that you can kind of compare to remote work a bit better because 
the fact that people don't know each other uh, just reduces the, the bandwidth of communication that they can have. They actually are remote in that setting. They're never sitting together in the same, in the same setting. And, and what I see is that actually um, people, having people who, uh, who know each other, uh, work on the same, you know, work together on, on tasks and they can work very closely interdependently seems to help. And that's, you know, that's, that's an early analysis. I haven't published the paper yet and, you know, it's, uh, it's relatively early, so I, I would say to take this with some kind of caution, but it kind of, kind of makes sense, right? Uh, in, a in, a, in a world where it's really difficult to coordinate because you're in a new environment and you don't quite uh, you know, like know how to work in that environment and, uh, and you, have, you, you might even have to work with, you know, with perhaps people that you don't even know from before, um, have, relying on this relationship that you had beforehand is a way of relay, relying on prior routines that you might have with them, uh, even just relying on the fact that you communicate better with them. Uh, something that I've found in my personal experience, and I think there is some, some research on that as well, is that actually remote communication works better when people have already met in person before. And so to some extent, if that's something, that, if that's a lever that's possible for, for your organization, I would say if you have the possibility of creating teams like this where people have worked together um, you know, work together before non-remotely, that's something to, I think, uh, think about and, and, and rely on. Routines, I imagine from, from all the research, make us more productive, right? Having them in place, having processes that we, we all know and adhere to, they make us more productive. If a company forms a remote team and no one knows each other, how can they form these routines remotely so they can learn how to work together, trust each other and, and be more productive? Um, well, so again, that's something where I actually don't know that, at least I can't think of any research directly on that, but I think we can, we can think about this just from what we know about routines in general, right? Uh, two things that we typically think of uh, when we talk about routines is the fact that they're partly emergent and they're partly tacit. What I mean is that, of course, typically there's some planning that goes behind routines, right? But there's always going to be some mutual adjustment between people over time. Uh, and these adjustments aren't always explicit. Sometimes you're just looking at what other people uh, are doing. You just, you know, just basically copy what they're doing because it seems right. Uh, or, you know, you might encounter some kind of problem and you, you ask someone, again, in the corridor at the coffee machine, whatever it is, and you adjust your behavior in, in, that, in, in that way. Um, that's something that's just gone now, pretty much, right? So, so you don't observe people quite as much. You typically have fewer opportunities to just randomly interact with them. And so, again, I haven't done research on this, but it just seems quite logical from that point of view that just trying to codify what we do, what we want to do as much as possible, I think, I think seems like something that that might help, right? So, like we we, we can't leave things to to chance quite as much, you know, like because just people are less likely to uh, to even go and ask for for advice. That's actually something that I've that I've heard in a few conversations that I've had with with, with managers uh, since since COVID, uh, you know, people people because you know, people are well-meaning and typically they'll try to solve the problem, and, and it's actually a lot harder to go and ask for ask for you know, for advice uh, when you actually have to you know to take the step of sending an email of, of sending a meeting and all that. So people have a tendency of just working on their own a bit more, and so so codifying how how they should work. Uh, is I think one thing that can help. The other thing is to just try and recreate the opportunity for random interactions to happen, right? And that can be difficult also because 
different people like this to a different extent. You know, like there's extroverts and introverts. Uh, you know, for people like me, having having 10, 10 meetings on Zoom every day is a bit is a bit is a bit tiring. I think the Zoom part is tiring for everybody, but I think some people enjoy meetings uh, more than others. But I think thinking about how you can create those opportunities for for random interactions, I think I think is quite 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 interesting. So like some some solutions that I've that I've seen are, for instance, having formal meetings where everybody comes together to debrief on their day at the end of the day, you might find out that you know, in 10 minutes you don't have anything to say to each other and that's fine, but you know, if there's some problem that, that emerges, people can discuss it through, uh, through that channel. Something else that I've seen is kind of interest groups basically where people just talk about whatever it is that they're interested in. It's just a mean of socializing, but well, A, socializing is very important actually, like preserving the, the social fabric of the organization remotely is not a trivial thing. But again, like through these social interactions, even if you're talking about football, uh, it might still be a way, you know, while you're having that conversation of saying, oh, by the way, I had, I had this problem the other day, how would you go about that? Right? So I think of preserving these opportunities for people to just ask each other randomly about things that can help them in their work, I think it's something that we don't, sometimes we don't necessarily think about right away, again, because we're trying to solve like the very you know, primary problems that we're encountering, but it, it, these, are, these are likely to be, quite important, especially in the medium and, and long-term, and long I think. Yeah, and talking about some, um, uh, what we what we just uh, discussed, I've seen companies that are actually playing online board games or just computer games to get to know each other better, right? What I want to ask is, is it better that the organization designs this kind of interactions or is it better that they leave it to their teams to do it? That's a, that's a very good question. Um, I, I at least have some research that suggests that, that setting some of it formally can be helpful. Um, and the reason for that is that just, you know, as, as a person you know, working in their day-to-day -day life, uh, adapting to a new setting like this just takes a lot of your energy already, right? So having this kind of second-order thinking of, you know, of ability thinking about, okay, how do I preserve my social network so that Two, three months from now, when I when I have problems, uh, I know who to talk to, or it's just like easy for for me to talk to them. It seems pretty you know pretty logical that it's going to be hard to have that thinking. And even if you do have that thinking, you still need to go and organize these kind of forums for people to interact together. So in general, the you know like in, in some work that I've done uh, with Spanish Puranam actually, um, the logic that we had is that if you can create forums of interaction for your employees but not necessarily force them to take, to, take, to take part in them, you're at least giving them the opportunity to, to go and interact with other people and basically test the hypothesis that they might benefit from it. If they try it and they don't like it, fine, right? But I think actually having, having this, uh, this, this, this thing uh, designed in the first place, I think, I think gives you the opportunity to find something that's, that's going to be helpful. Whereas if you just leave it all to, to your employees to do, uh, you, you know, it might work, but my bet is that it's going gonna, it's gonna to really depend on a bunch of different things about your organization, depending on what kind of social environment you had beforehand. You might have you know, a spirit of community that's a lot stronger than other organizations, for instance. But you know, leaving it to chance seems, like, seems pretty risky to me. So at least making some efforts to, creating, to create uh, yeah, forums like these for interactions, I think it's likely to create some value. I like what you just said about uh, testing and experimenting. What kind of 
data should a company, should an organization collect? So if they're if they're running this kind of experiments, right, to see hey, if I design this, does it work? Are they happy or not? What kind of data would you collect to ensure that you are testing you you can test your hypothesis? That's a that's a great question. Um, so there's there's different ways you can go about this. Um, surveys are always always helpful. Of course, they you know they they, they they enable you to kind of like scale and have have the opinion from as many people as possible in the organization. Um, the caveat to that is you know sometimes depending what you're asking about, depending on your organization, people might not want to want to share it. Uh, and the other thing about surveys is that when you ask people for their organization for their opinion, you're kind of committing to taking their opinion into account, right? So you have to be you have to be sure that you're that you're that you're okay with this as a, as a manager. Um, but they are helpful. Um, other things that you can use are well, you know, like the middle managers in the organization typically have good visibility over um, you know what's happening at the ground level. Uh, same thing for informal leaders, for instance. I think in most organization. In most organizations, you know, like the managers typically have an idea of, you know, who are informal leaders, who, you know, who, who's someone that people go to for advice and all that. These are great sources of information. I think during times like these where there's, there is a lot of, of change happening, keeping visibility of, of what's happening at the ground level is really important. So they're, they're, they're extremely helpful. Um, and so once you have that kind of information, either through surveys, through managers or, or informal leaders, in some cases, actually even through, through archival data. So I know that uh, uh, things like Microsoft SharePoint, for instance, can, can allow you to have an idea of, you know, of, of course, not looking at the content of communication, but knowing who communicates with whom, who goes to meetings with whom, um, you know, comparing what you see in systems like these before and after you go, uh, you go remote, excuse me, uh, can be can be I think very very interesting because it will give you an idea of how again the social fabric of your organization is evolving uh, you know, when you when you go when you go remote like this. And the last resort, and that's something that I, that I'm that I'm teaching my students uh, here, is that if you don't really have an idea of uh, of, you know, of of all the information you need here, if you, if you can't really collect that kind of data, uh, you can make your own assumptions. So, like, so what I teach my, my students is to use simulations basically to, um, to, uh, to kind of make predictions about, for instance, organizational change and whether, whether pe people are going to be convinced about some new initiative uh, that you might try to implement in your, in your organization. And again, if you have data on who are the informal leaders, who talks to whom and all that, wonderful. You can plug that into your simulation and make predictions based on that. And that's actually a very powerful tool. Um, but even if you don't know, you can try different scenarios right? and try to try to understand basically which assumptions you need to make for uh, for things to work for, for instance, for organizational change to be to be successful. I think as a manager, uh, having that kind of information is super useful. Sometimes just to actually challenge our own assumptions. Sometimes you know, like we're enthusiastic about about things that we want to implement, so we just assume that it's going to work. Uh, having these types of tools that show us what needs to be true for that to work is actually extremely useful. Then we realize that, that, that it's going to be a bit, a bit more challenging than what we thought. And then we can strategize about what to do to still make it work. And not wanting, not wanting to give uh, work to all the analysts that companies are uh, hiring, especially in, uh, in HR, right? People analytics is big right now. But I think this would be a nice uh, study for them, a nice research for them internally, which could bring quite a lot of results. Definitely. That's why I, I tell my, my students in my, in my class. Um, First, I mean, especially simulations, I think, are an area where um, we often assume that it's extremely difficult to run them. 
But actually, even running a very simple simulation can 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 bring results again, just in challenging our own assumptions about about whether things are going to work. Um, and any analyst who you know who knows a little bit of programming language uh, can put that together, right? So again, like I'm, I I apologize to every to every analyst out there that I, that I might that might have to work more uh, because of what I'm going to say. But I, I actually, you know, myself doing some analytics as well, I actually find this a pretty pretty interesting. Uh, uh, exercise to go through, and you can really learn a lot from that. That, that you know, out of the whole, let's say, analytics you know, suite of tools that we have, that's actually one of the of the ones that I really feel is underutilized. It's not difficult to put together, and I don't see a huge amount of use for that. So, so I think there's a lot of potential there. True, true, true. But don't worry, uh, Julien, I will put a link uh, of, of your LinkedIn and uh, where people can find you in case they want to run the simulations and they do not know how. <laughs> so maybe I'm creating problems for myself there. <laughs> Talking a bit about the change uh, process, because you've done a lot of research uh, there. What can we, th this will be, right? We, we were forced uh, into, into remote work when the pandemic started. But a lot of companies have announced that they are moving towards uh, remote or they are staying uh, remote. There are still a lot of changes to be done, uh, a lot of adjustments, so everyone can uh, can have this type of work and not still use their bedroom or their kitchen, and have a proper place to, to work. Organizations will need to change processes. They might be even uh, need to change uh, tools and systems. What can they learn from your research so they can make this a bit easier for them for themselves? And clearly, if we were talking about, about this five months ago, I think the, the, the clear advice that I would give is just get your Zoom set up right. I think if we had all done that, we probably would have saved ourselves some pain, but I think we're all past that, that painful hurdle now. I think the main, the main advice that I really would have is to try and, and keep visibility over what's happening to the organization uh, as you go through that transition, right? So keeping data um, as much as possible on, you know, on, on on how people are interacting, how they're behaving, how they're how they're working. Uh, of course, you know, who means that you know that's, uh, that's that 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 preserve uh, basically transparency about what you're collecting and all that, right? But that's 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 very important. But I think I think it will be interesting even for I think even the people who are working at the at the you know at any level of the organization right now are curious about what's happening to the organization in general. Right? It's like one thing that happens actually that gets removed as we move to these remote settings that our own visibility over the whole organization just diminishes so much. Right? I, can, I, can, I, can, I can even tell this in my, in my own department. I think perhaps in academia, I think we're a bit more shielded from that because we're in, we're, we're in a work where it, we're a little bit more independent to begin with. But I see my colleagues less. I, I, I know what they're up to a lot less. And I'm curious, right? So I can only imagine that people in some organizations would, would want to know that uh, a lot more. So I think... Collecting data about what we just uh, what we just discussed, I think it's going to be interesting both to run your own kind of analysis and um, and bring your you know basically inform your decisions better, but also to give to give an image of the organization to your employees, to the members of the organization, so that they understand a little bit better how the organization is moving through the through the change and basically what's happening to to all their colleagues. So I think that's um, that's that's really quite important. You, you just spoke uh, a few minutes ago about um, this uh, social networks, right, that form inside organizations and getting some data on them. How can organizations use this? And is there a better way to figure out who are the supporters and who are against the kind of change you want to go through? Who is maybe more important or m mostly influencing the others and how you can 
use them to to uh, to the company's advantage? Um, so, I mean, in general, I think network analysis can be used in a lot of different ways. And I think again, like there's there are organizations out there that use network analysis, but many many don't. I think network analysis is one tool where Basically, you can use it at a lot of different levels of sophistication, but even if you use it at the lowest level, you're, you're already going to get some value from it. Right? So again, at the lowest level, it's about uh, identifying who are the informal leaders in the organization, who seem to talk to a lot of people. Um, so just having that information is just super important, again, because per what you were just saying, when you go through a, a period of organizational change, when you have to create buy-in for, uh, for instance, like the way you're handling uh, remote work or any other type of change you're, you're, you're thinking about, knowing who's going to be central in the organization is, is really quite important. Right? So, so that's something you can, you can, uh, you can data on, you can, you can get data on, as I, as I was mentioning, through surveys, through, uh, through observations of your, of your managers, through, through the kind of archival data that we can see through my Microsoft SharePoint and, and, and all that. Uh, it becomes very, I think, very powerful because um, having people inside the organization who are who are who are in favor of wh whatever change you're 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 thinking about is basically the first step towards adoption at the, at the level of the whole organization. Of course, it's not you know it's not sufficient, right? So so you need to do more than just convince a few people in the in the in the organization. Uh, and so thinking about how you can do that, what kind of levers you can use. Um, to to not just make people buy in once, but actually go and and help you uh, create buy in for, for for what you're doing within the organization is very important. Yes, there's a bunch of formal means uh, you can use there. Incentives are always are always helpful. Uh, formal responsibilities, right, for instance. So like, if you find that find out that someone is an informal leader within your organization, you think they're really gonna gonna help create buy in. For uh, for whatever decision you're making, uh, there's no reason that they have to stay an informal leader, right? They, they can also become a formal leader for the initiative that you have that you have in mind. So, like creating these kind of positions sometimes uh, helps, uh, basically motivates people a lot in creating that kind of buy-in. And something else that I've seen that I've seen in research that I found very interesting, I think, so some of it is from the work of Kate Kellogg, who's at, uh, who's at MIT, is the idea that you also want uh, change agents and these, these informal leaders to be to be visible to each other, especially at the beginning when you're trying to create buy-in for uh, for for some set, some decision to have you have, and there isn't a huge amount of buy-in within the organization yet. Um, you want to make sure that the few people who are convinced. Uh, don't get demotivated because they see that everybody around them hasn't been convinced yet and they, they start believing that, that it's not going to work. Right? So like giving them some kind of visibility, creating some kind of cocoon where they can reinforce each other's opinions, interact with each other, maybe even strategize about how to convince others within the company is something that I, that I found quite, quite, uh, quite, quite interesting. So, so, so that's, that's the first step towards creating, creating, creating buy-in uh, more generally. I'm not sure that I completely answered on the, on the question there, uh, but that's something that I find interesting. I'm not sure if what I'm asking you next uh, has ever been researched, but I was thinking about those who are negative influencers, right? Who are really against the change. Uh, do you try to get them on board? Is that the way? Or do you leave them on, alone because they are minority and at some point they will need to comply? That's a, that's a good question. I, I don't think that there's a huge amount of, uh, of work on that. Um, I, I actually have some 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 work using simulations where we, we look at the at the impact of these uh, negative influencers, 
And I think that's actually something that's quite important to think about because even if we look at you know, management wisdom on organizational change, what we what we very often see is this idea of the expert, right? So, so that you know, like you, you build this kind of initial group of you know of people who are who are who are excited, and then they come these others, and and you and you reach uh, this point where everybody believes. It. To some extent, that's assuming that change is the only thing that's getting diffused, right? But it's not, right? Like resistance to change diffuses also. People, people who are who are against the change go and convince others, and so it's actually what we call in research a dual, a uh, competing diffusion diffusion process. Um, I actually can't really say that we have a huge amount uh, that we that we know about this yet. That's, that's certainly something that I've been doing research on uh, lately, and that I want to understand better because I think you're right. It's it's super important. Um, do we have conclusions other than just saying that's something you should keep in mind? Um, and and you no. Know, yeah, I'm not sure that we have much better to say than that. The thing that I that I would just say here is also going to depend on the organization you're working in, right? So, so um, people who are, first, like, people differ from each other, organizations differ from each other, right? So, so for people who, like, for, who, are, who are extremely negative about uh, a certain change initiative, uh, some of them might be even you know, possible to convince, some of them might be completely impossible to convince. That's something that you create visibility on just because, just by having basically Information at the you know at the at the basic at the base levels of the organization, basically keeping in touch with what's happening on the on the ground. So I think the first yeah basically if, if I have one one uh, very basic uh, comment to make here is that first actually getting visibility on that I think is the first step. I think I think in, in many in many uh, situations we actually don't have much visibility. Uh, basically combining both knowing who's against, but also knowing who they talk to and who they're likely to convince. And that's something that helps you a lot predict these kinds of dynamics. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting, maybe for uh, future research for uh, for everyone, uh, because as you said, they, it's, uh, it's a double force. Your interest in agile organizations and uh, flat organizations that, uh, that you've studied, can we apply anything to remote? Oh, it's interesting. Um, I feel like there's there's two questions here actually, right? Like uh, on the one hand, for organizations that already use agile, are they better equipped to adapt to remote work? And second, you know, if I'm a manager in an organization that isn't using agile, does it make sense to change and, and start using agile to you know to adapt to this new remote work setting? Um, I think it's a very interesting question. My bet is that for organizations that are already using agile. Uh, I would imagine that yes, they might be better equipped to move to remote work, but not necessarily because of the agile methodology itself. Uh, it's more that basically the same elements that make agile work well for a company, in my opinion, are also the same elements that are, that are likely to make remote work easier on them. So if we think of what kind of companies are best suited for agile in general, it's companies that uh, work on pretty what we call decomposable problems. For instance, they can organize pretty easily into teams that work on separate projects with relatively few interdependencies among these projects. Uh, very often, it's also companies whose workforce enjoys autonomy, right? Like people like to find their own solutions to problems without too much oversight above them. Now, if we think about what's likely to make remote work uh, easier for a company, it's at least partially the same thing, right? Like remote work makes it harder to coordinate, so having fewer interdependencies is easier. Uh, it also makes oversight harder, again, because we, as we said, we don't have as much visibility, so having employees who can work well autonomously is gonna make things easier. Now, 
So that basically means that if you are uh, looking around you, you might see a lot of agile organizations that do fine with remote work. That's possible. Now, as the manager of a company that isn't using agile yet, does that mean that you should switch to agile? I'd say not necessarily. Right? Like you still want to go through the same steps you normally would use in thinking about whether agile is a good idea for you. So how decomposable is the work? What are the demographics of your employees? Uh, how costly is it to fail, right? Like, you know, there's a reason we don't see Boeing uh, use Agile, right? Like, uh, Agile is thought of as a, as a method that helps with search problems where, you know, having a little, a little failure every once in a while isn't the most costly of things. Um, and also ask yourself whether there are ways you can actually experiment with Agile, right? See, see, if, see if your employees like it, right? Try a, a two-day a two project, for instance, uh, where people could try organizing on an, on, an, on an agile model and see whether that works for them. I don't think the fact that we move to remote necessarily changes the question you should ask. Um, I think the questions remain the same, but what you want to do is ask yourself whether the move to remote in your company makes you, know, makes you change your answers to these questions. If they have, then, then it might actually make sense uh, to think about incorporating some elements of agile, for instance, uh, in your organization. From what you've experienced so far, yourself uh, going remote, from what you're teaching your students, what you've read, how do you see the future of remote? <laughs> I, I wish I knew. <laughs> In a way, I'm, I'm as curious as you are. Um, what's in, what doesn't seem like a risky prediction is to think that remote work is going to become more important in the future and that the pandemic probably accelerate, accelerated that trend. Right? Uh, I find it interesting to see that, you know, Quite a few companies are seriously considering moving at least part of their activity to being remote in the long term. And I think that makes some sense because you know, the current situation, on the one hand, has made it more salient to us that things like this can happen again in the future. Right? So like being, being prepared for them uh, is important. I think the second reason for that is, is also that we just, we just got better at it. Right? So I can tell you from my own perspective, as a teacher, you know, business schools have talked about creating capabilities for teaching remotely for a very, very long time, right? And they, and they have to some extent, right? I think I, at Stanford, we have, uh, we already had what I think is a pretty successful online teaching program before the pandemic. But if you look at the entire population of teachers here, it was a very small set of that population that was involved in that, in that remote teaching program. And we basically heard about it when we had lunch with these, with these teachers, but most of us had no idea how to do that, right? Now we've basically all of them, all of us, we've, we've pretty much all uh, experienced that. And so you know, we're sharing the lessons we learned from that process with each other. And so if we had to do it again in the future, if we, you know, if we had to do it on the long term, I can tell you that we would love doing it. I, I love having my students in, in class, but clearly it would, seem, it would seem like less daunting of a challenge. And so I bet that there has to be... Com there have to be companies out there which, you know, which were thinking of operating remotely even before the pandemic, but that maybe weren't sure that they could put it off, that now clearly see that they have the capabilities to, capabilities to do it. So I, I would definitely imagine that what we're experiencing right now is going to accelerate the trend uh, towards remote. Any new areas of study for you going, uh, moving towards the future? There's a, there's, there's, there's a lot that I'm doing at the, at the moment. Uh, I still think there's a lot of, uh, of things to do with, with esports data just because it's, it's so rich, right? So I'm thinking of launching uh, new projects in that area, especially with, with students. I'm, I'm hoping to do that. Um, I also do some work in more traditional settings. So for instance, I'm trying to understand 
how reorganizations affect the, the networks of companies, maybe who talks to whom, who works with whom, and how we can, again, preserve the, the social fabric of an organization when it reorganizes, not necessarily just for remote work, but just you know, even reorganizations more, uh, more broadly. And, and lately, I've really picked up an interest in how we can use AI to make better decisions about organization design. So making organization design decisions is really complex, right? <laughs> There's a lot of factors to take into account, uh, different time horizons to consider as well. Like we, we can just like we can just design to solve the problems we're facing now. We also have to think about the future and what kind of organization design is going to help us adapt in the future, right? It's just very hard for us as humans to take all of that into account. And so thinking about how we can rely on data to make recommendations basically about design that take into account uh, possibly future horizons as well as solving the, the, the current problem, I think is something that's really interesting. And I've started working on that with some of my colleagues here at Stanford, and I'm, I'm really excited about that. Julien, is there something that maybe I didn't ask you and you would like to add on remote work? Uh, I, don't know, I, I, I had a lot of fun talking about this to some extent. I, 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 I was, you know, like when you first asked me, I wasn't completely sure uh, how much I could say about this. That was, you know, that, that, that would be that would be helpful. And I really, I really hope that at least some of my research can can inform, um, you know, some of you out there that are that are uh, that are thinking about all these problems and and, and facing it on a, on, a, on a daily basis. Uh, I really enjoyed that, and I think all, all that I have to say is just you know, good luck to all of you, and, and thank you for making it through the, the whole podcast. Thank you very much, Julian, for your time today. 